And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Muddy Knees Media. The heating's on. It's getting darker earlier and earlier, so why not cheer yourself up this November with a subscription to The Athletic for just £1 a week. For only 100 of your English pence every seven days, you'll get unrivaled analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, plus a breaking news service and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts. Sign up today at theathletic.com slash totally. Totally Football Show. Today, Moo gives City new lockdown, adds fresh tears for Pep, while Liverpool finally keep a clean sheet now they got rid of all their defenders. We round up all the round nine results, including the huge disappointment that was Leeds-Arsenal, in which not once did the commentator say the Arsenal defenders holding the opponent's cock. All that and more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, listener. It's Monday, the 23rd of November, and with us here are Michael Cox, who wonders if J-Rod is the problem at Everton. Hello, Michael. Hi, James. Daniel Storey is with us, who believes that Newcastle's secret weapon is being so bad, it literally bores their opponents to sleep. Daniel? Yeah, sometimes works. Hi, James. Hi there. And also Duncan Alexander, who knows you want his digits. <laughs> Apparently so, yeah. Yes. The digits really popular this Sunday. Uh, yeah. Yeah, some lots of, the, of them. Some of the classic numbers. All right. Should we run through the scores? Wolves Saints, that's tomorrow. Burnley Crystal Palace is tomorrow. Liverpool, Breeze past Leicester, 3-0. Leeds and Arsenal shared a goalless draw. Fulham gave Everton a bit of a scare, roaring back to make it 3-2 in the game at Craven Cottage. Sheffield United went down again, this time 1-0 to West Ham. Man United had a narrow 1-0 win over West Brom. Brighton had their first ever win at Villa 2-1. Spurs beat Man City 2-0. And it was the same scoreline for Chelsea away at Newcastle. Where do you want to begin from all of that lot? How about the game that we just finished watching, because it's Sunday night for us, listener. Liverpool against Leicester. That smell of mincemeat, that was your team, Brendan. Liverpool barely troubled by, by Leicester, it turned out. Yeah, I thought Liverpool were excellent here. I thought they might get a, a bit of a difficult game, especially considering their injury problems. But I think, you know, looking at their side, you have to give them great credit, the fact that they had almost their entire right side out. I mean, their right side was Milner and Jota with uh, with young Jones in between them down the right. And I thought they were brilliant down that flank. I thought Milner's passes in behind, Jota's movement, obviously. Um, and from the other side, they had a more kind of traditional link up between Mane and Robertson. And yeah, I just thought they had just great intensity to their play, which I don't think we can say of many sides at the moment. I think it's hard to play with intensity behind closed doors. But Liverpool didn't have that problem. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was 3-0, which I think is probably fair. But I mean, the third goal could have come a lot earlier than the 86th minute because they seemed to hit the woodwork about three times, I think, Liverpool. So yeah, I was very impressed by them. They also had uh, what would have been the, th- the third goal 
disallowed from millimetric GDS decision. The first goal came from uh, Leicester's own Johnny Evans. Jota made it 2-0 with a fabulous finish to a sweeping move upfield from um, Andrew Robertson. And then it was Firmino at the death, making it 3-0. What what happened to Leicester in this match? I, this does occasionally happen with Leicester when they go to, to big teams with this kind of huge expectation. And I think it's quite easy to extrapolate that to, to Brendan Rodgers and say, well, maybe he... They maybe got a little bit carried away and a little bit giddy. I think the reality is they're just, even with Liverpool's absences, you look at the team's player on player and Liverpool are far stronger. Um, it's probably more of a, an assessment at where Leicester are that we expected them to go to Anfield and maybe you know re- really trouble Liverpool and maybe get something out of the game. The question is is what happens in response to that because when they were soundly beaten by Liverpool um, last season, um, they kind of went on this run that it seemed to completely destabilise and completely remove their belief. I'd be surprised if the same thing happened again because I just think the Premier League is a little bit weaker and they are a little bit stronger. I mean, it seemed to me like Leicester came with a real counter-attacking game plan the same way they played at the Emirates, which I think is maybe the most controlled and most well-carried-out tactical plan I've seen all season. The problem, of course, is that when you can see the first goal, it's very difficult to play that way. And I didn't really ever fancy Leicester to come back into it. But, yeah, the longer it stayed at nil-nil, maybe the more Leicester would have started to threaten. But, I mean, the own goal, people kept on saying it was unfortunate, but the ball's come from quite a long way away. And Johnny Evans doesn't seem to have any real consideration that he might <laughs> actually be in a position to yeah. play the ball. I mean, it's... If a shot hits you like that and it goes in, then you don't have time to react. But I'm not quite sure why he was so surprised that the corner, which had travelled 50 yards, kept on going and hitting his head and ending up in the goal. He hit in the back of his head, uh, crucially. Duncan, you're pointing out uh, Anfield now with come to be more no-look goals than any other Premier League ground. Of course, Bobby Firmino, the man who's more usually mm. uh, associated with that kind of move. He finally got a home goal at the end of this game. Diogo Jota now with four open play Premier League home goals this season. Again, these are your stats on Boring Duncan, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is double the amount that Man City have had and four times the number that Man United have had. Incredible. Yeah, it's hard to remember a player settling in to a to a big club as, as quickly as Jota has. I mean, maybe it is like Mo Salah um, or Sadio Mane. I mean, Liverpool, I guess, have been quite fortunate that they make these signings. I mean, obviously, a lot of, a lot of planning and research goes into it, but, you know, they do have a habit of signing players that that really hit the ground running but I think the key thing today was Fabinho being fit because you know Liverpool's defensive record when he actually plays at centre-half is amazing and um, they've only actually considered three goals now in seven games since Van Dijk was injured so for me it feels more like uh, you know Alisson coming back was the was the key injury to to get over rather than obviously they will miss Van Dijk uh, a bit but I think he's possibly less crucial than uh, than Alisson has proved. Liverpool are now making it a club record 64 home league games unbeaten. And the uh, the list of absentees that they had, obviously Leicester had some players out as well, but no Salah, no Van Dijk, no Trent, Henderson or Gomez uh, for Klopp's side. You mentioned James Milner's performance in an unfamiliar role over on, on the right, Michael. Anybody else you'd really like to cite for the way they came in and, and filled in and, and kept a clean sheet and that? I thought back to front they played well. I mean, Matip, I thought, in a couple of situations dealt well with the the pace of Leicester, which was always going to be the main threat. And even Curtis Jones, I mean, I wouldn't say he was 
particularly outstanding today. But it just feels like when a when a newcomer comes into, you know, he's been there for a while. But when when an unfamiliar player comes into the first eleven at Liverpool, they just seem to know their roles. And to go back to what Duncan was saying about players settling in early, you know, I think we always have a tendency these days if if a new signing starts really well to say, oh, that was great from the you know, the analytics department or the transfer committee. But it's also about the manager. It's also about the manager getting them on the training pitch and making them aware of their responsibilities. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Jota's started well as Mane has and as Salah has because they have a very clear system. And the same goes for Jones. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy to play in the Liverpool midfield, but he comes in and he knows that he's not going to have to score goals because the, the front three score so many. He's not really responsible for that much creativity because of the fullbacks and because of Firmino. It just must just be quite nice to come into such a well-functioning side and realise that, you know, basically you're not going to be exposed in any situations because they're so well-organised and they're so compact. I feel that way coming back from a little trip to World's Shrugged Man. <laughs> Daniel, I know you, Sunday night for you is very much winners and losers for the excellent Football 365 and you kept a couple of spaces back for Sunday night's game. In the losers column, it, it, will there be anyone from Leicester heading in there? I, I, they will get a mention, but they won't be particularly high up, I don't think. Um, I think there's a tendency, it comes with the, the territory of writing a weekly column, but there's a tendency to knee-jerk on, on results like this for non-big clubs against big six clubs. This is not a disaster, it's how they respond to it. They go and lose the next two games, fine, but they did beat Arsenal 1-0 away in their last away game, so it's not... It's not a disaster at all. Nice bit of perspective, Daniel. All right. Well, Liverpool's title rivals were in action on Saturday in the clash at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And it was, of course, Spurs, the team that are now tied with Liverpool on top of the table and ahead on goal difference, while Man City languish all the way down in 13th place. Two goals here, the first from Sun early on. That's his 11th of the season. City had a Laporte equaliser disallowed for a Jesus handball, Jesus handball. And then Giovanni Lo Celso scoring his first Premier League goal barely 35 seconds after his magic coach, Mourinho, brought him on. Uh, this has been hailed as Mourinho's masterpiece. Would you agree, this, this performance here from Spurs? I think it's the exactly the type of performance that he'd hang in a, a gallery he dedicated to himself and would adore. Had hallmarks of that classic Mourinho. They they scored both their two shots on target. They were hugely outshot and yet still felt as if they were holding the opponents at arm's length. Uh, and it was a victory over, over Pep Guardiola to take Tottenham top of the league for the first time since August 2014. So Mourinho will see all that four of those things as hallmarks of his effect at the club and yeah, you can. It's difficult to disagree with them because uh, it, it felt as if that not as if they weren't attacking uh, out of necessity, but almost out of choice. And if they attack attack City too often, there would be no surprise weapon. But as soon as they tried to pass through that press, City just looked completely unable to deal with it. And um, two or three passes, and they created a goal scoring opportunity. Part of the reason for that was the superb build up play from Harry Kane, who's become... Well, he was likened to Zinedine Zidane by Gary Neville uh, in the uh, in the commentary for this. But, you know, a chuckle, of it, if you will, extraordinarily effective in this false nine role. I, I myself was, was recording Francesco Tossi uh, in the way he was able to unleash the midfielders. But his, his transformation is much, much commented on. But, Duncan, some numbers, please. Well, he was, he was more like a full six at points in this game because he was back making tackles. I mean, he really is... You know, you see players sometimes where they hit a 
hit a vein of form or they or they get to a point where they kind of really go up a level. I remember the oh six oh seven when Cristiano Ronaldo went from a kind of you know promising winger to just you know an unplayable Premier League god. And obviously Harry Kane's been at an incredible goal scoring standard for the, most of the decade. But at the moment he you know you could see the City players were were terrified of of going near him, of standing off him. He um you know he's got that aura at the moment and. Like I said the other day, you know, Mourinho, all of Mourinho's best teams have, have had one or two of those players in them that he kind of builds a, a kind of, you know, uh, military back to the walls sort of uh, atmosphere around. Um, and yeah, I mean, we've we've had years of thinking Mourinho's never going to get back to a, a sort of genuine title contender, but he really does seem to have his mojo back. And his teams have only lost one of the last 84 Premier League matches in which they've been ahead. So, you know, that is... It was always his great, you know, skill as a manager. Um, but you know, I think you know reports of his demise are, are, have possibly been uh, bigger than than it turns out. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we got that one very wrong, uh, particularly you know the way that Spurs started the season against uh, what Newcastle and Everton, etc. Another of the kind of hallmarks of the great Mourinho side is his ability to get. Um, an attacking player to kind of sacrifice themselves to, to, to adopt a deeper role to to do the extra work in a, in a more un- unglamorous part of the, of the game and in this Kane seems to be very much it's a different way that he's doing it than say Sami Eto did for Inter but it's still remarkable the numbers uh, Duncan you were highlighting included the fact that uh, Paul Scholes and Xavi Alonso never assisted more than seven goals in a Premier League season and Kane is already up to nine in nine Premier League games this campaign it's it's just incredible. He's got three times as many Premier League assists as Kevin De Bruyne this season. Yeah, I mean the numbers. I mean everyone kind of knows that the the record Thierry Henry's record of twenty in a season stood for a long time. Obviously De Bruyne equaled it last season, but you know at this rate Kane's going to be almost that that level by sort of January February. Um, now what's happened historically is that. You know, Henri got most of his assists towards the end of that season. Mesut Ozil nearly broke it and got loads at the start and then really tailed off. It is, for some reason, it it's harder to maintain consistent assisting across the season than it is goal scoring, um, for whatever reason. But yeah, I mean, Kane is on track for one of the great, uh, you know, top flight seasons. A word too for Pierre Emil Hjoberg, who um, I was looking at the statistics. The the top Spurs player last season for for winning possession was was Musa Sissoko, who ranked twenty eighth in the Premier League, and the player who ranked top in the Premier League was Hoberg. And Mourinho wanted bite in his midfield. Sometimes recruitment looks a fairly easy business. He wanted to come to Spurs. Spurs realised they needed him, and suddenly he's doing it again. He's top for tackles won this season. He's third for possession won. He feels such a natural fit for a Mourinho midfield that um, it's almost remarkable how easily Spurs were able to just kind of pick him up off Southampton. Yeah, I thought it was it was quite interesting what uh, Mourinho did tactically as well with those two players, with Sissoko and Hoiberg, is when City pushed a player into the channel, they kind of dropped in to form a back five, kind of dropped into a position between the fullback and the centre-back. You don't really see that very much, but I thought it worked really well, particularly Sissoko coming inside... Uh, of Aurier who could go out and close down on that flank and he would then yeah just stop any balls played into that channel. I thought it was quite, not innovative, but it was just very effective and I thought it nullified De Bruyne when, when he was making those typical runs on the other side as well. So normally what, it would be the wing-backs who would drop back, but here they, they remain free to roam and, and it's the midfielders who, who join up. 
Well, just the fact that they ended up almost with a back five, which uh, kind of helps against the way City play because City push players forward and basically fill five channels. So you you always run the risk of being overloaded with your four defenders and there's often space out wide for one of City's players, but they could kind of match them five against five. And it was just quite rare to see any kind of through ball danger in behind Tottenham's defence just because they filled that channel really well. And I think actually the other decision I thought Mourinho got spot on was maybe a more obvious one, but Son's generally played from the left um, and he played from the right. And obviously that meant he wasn't up against Kyle Walker, who's maybe the, the quickest defender around, but instead was up against Cancelo, who I actually think has had a really good season um, and was fine here, but did get caught out a couple of times. And of course that resulted in the opener, um, which came very early, but also that chance in the second half as well, Son going in behind and took a heavy touch around um, around Edison. So yeah, I thought this was a, a great tactical victory for Mourinho. And as uh, as I think Daniel said, kind of classic Mourinho, really, the, the nature of the victory. Mm-hmm. A good sim back to his best. Duncan, you mentioned uh, Spurs' great record when taking the lead in matches. Obviously, the, the opposite is true when we look at Man City. When they go behind, they almost never come back. And, and again, in this performance, Pep unable to do anything to reverse the, the course of this match, which is remarkable because it's not like he didn't know what to expect. Every time he goes to Spurs, particularly when Jose Mourinho is the manager, it's the same thing. They have, on average, about what? 22, 23 shots and they, they don't score any goals. Spurs will have maybe two or three and we'll score a couple of goals and we'll take all three points. At this point, with Pep signing a new deal, j- just what are Man City getting? Are they getting a manager who's running out of ideas? Are they getting a manager who is now whose players are now beginning to be a bit tired of him? It's quite difficult to judge, I mean, Pep's never rebuilt a team in his managerial career. He's done, you know, this is the longest he's ever been at a club. So that would suggest that, you know, maybe it is a, a task that he's going to going to find difficult. But like you just mentioned about the shot, City have had 41 shots in the last two Premier League games against Spurs, and they've lost them both without scoring. And Spurs scored with both their shots on target in this game. So, you know, those sort of numbers aren't aren't sustainable in a in a kind of negative way. You know, City are creating good chances. But they, uh, for me, they just need Aguero back or a, or a replacement for Aguero. You know, they average two more shots a game and more possession when Aguero plays. Um, you know, he, he's been at the heart of all their their great sort of seasons, really. So, you know, will he ever get back to that level? Uh, I guess we we don't know yet. But yeah, for me, that feels like the big the big kind of uh, absence. Yeah, it's amazing what a difference a, a firing centre-forward can make to kind of the shift in mood just by taking a couple of chances that other players don't take. Aguero's only started 20 games of 46 since the start of last season in the league and that's simply not enough. Gabriel Jesus is is good at some things, but I think probably finds it quite difficult, understandably, to come in for a run of four or five games and know that he will probably be out of the team after that. And yeah, it, I think that would only mask City's problems. There are clearly other structural issues within the team, but it would make a it would place a really handy veil over some of the things they're doing badly. If if they had a striker playing who or a player playing who scored, you know, two of their four shots and all four of them half chances, which City just aren't doing at the moment. I think as well, without Aguero, City sometimes seemed like a bit of a one man team just based around De Bruyne, and I thought his performance was interesting because, as Duncan mentioned. De Bruyne last season equaled the the number of uh, you know the record assists for a season, 
and that was fine. You know, if you base your side around a player who's completely playing for a team, that's fine. But I thought there were a few occasions on Saturday where he felt like he wasn't passing to his teammates and almost didn't trust that they'd do anything. And he was taking shots from quite wild positions. I mean, there was one from a free kick wide on the left. Uh, there was one where he kind of went into the right channel. I couldn't work out what he was trying to do if he wasn't trying to chip it into the far corner. And just looking at the stats, I mean, neither of them were actually counted as stats, according to Duncan's friends at Opta, but he had six other stats, uh, six other shots, sorry. And none of them were on target. I mean, a few were blocked. I think one was blocked by his own player, wasn't it? But he just, you know, you can't base your side around someone who isn't, you know, passing to his teammates when they're in decent positions. Uh, you know, it was a one-off game. It's not a, a constant pattern, but I thought it did kind of summarise City's lack of ideas going forward. Yeah, I noticed that as well. And obviously he's now the captain and you do wonder whether it's a slight... I mean, the the most famous example of this happening is what the the game Liverpool lost to Chelsea in 2014, the, the Gerrard slip. And, you know, Liverpool had ample opportunities to get back into that game, but Steven Gerrard had like nine shots from long range in that match. And... You know, I think when your team is struggling and you're the captain and you're the sort of figurehead of a team, that occasionally you can sort of try and you know take on all that responsibility. And I think, yeah, Michael's spot on there. Mm. In other exciting insights from this game was the terrific audio. I don't know if you were listening without enhanced sound, as they they call it. Uh, it was incredibly clear. The uh, at times painfully so. The, the usual apologies for some fruity language. But one thing that was intriguing was the that somebody appeared to be shouting instructions in French, and I, I'm pretty sure it was Hugo Lloris. But I, I was curious as to who he was doing it to. What Serge Aurier and perhaps Moussa Sissoko? But why in French when you know the rest of the team? Or maybe Spurs have just adopted French. Uh, perhaps as a, a means of confusing their opponents. I don't know, and we, we probably will never have clarity on that. Uh, in, in the meantime, let's let's move on. Uh, both sides are in action, European action, this week. Man City will be travelling to Olympiacos in the Champions League. Spurs will have a visit from Ludogorets in the Europa League on Thursday, after which, how about this for a match-up, they're going to be taking on Frank Lampard's Chelsea. Woof. Let's get on to Chelsea after this. On this week's From the Horse's Mouth podcast, the lads are joined by Shane Lowry, fresh from his master's performance at Augusta. Here's what Shane's caddy was too scared to say to Tiger Woods after his disastrous 10 on the 12th. Because any time he hit a bad drive or an average drive, he'd say to Joe's caddy, that was like one of yours. And we stood on the 13th tee and Bo said to me, what do you think he'd say if I said to him, I bet you wish Joe hit that one? <laughs> <laughs> Search Paddy Power on your podcast provider to listen now. Paddy Power. 18 plus, this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Duncan's not finished talking about City yet. Is it about their the lack of effective pressing on the counter, Duncan? Uh, no, it's not. It's about the fact that 10 goals after eight games is their lowest figure since they had six in 2006-07, which you might remember is the Stuart Pearce season, um, when City scored their final home goal of the season on New Year's Day. And still didn't go down. So, wow. you know, maybe maybe Pep's, uh, you know, channeling his inner Stuart Pearce. Interesting. 
Right, we were going to talk about Spurs against Chelsea, or rather what Chelsea got up to this weekend to win a relatively comfortable time of it away at Newcastle, a 2-0 win featuring an own goal from Fernandes. And then Tammy Abraham off a wonderful assist from Timo Werner. Daniel, you'd like to comment, I think, on this game. I, I just wanted to briefly talk about Newcastle because there's this notion that, um, well, there's there's three things that get said about Newcastle. I've written about all of them, win, lose, lose, so I won't talk about all of them. But one of them is that um, the retort that, well, Rafa Benitez played like this as Newcastle manager, which to an extent is true. There was that Manchester City game where they effectively completely abdicated responsibility of the ball and barely tried to attack. But in his last half season at Newcastle, um, Benitez had Newcastle as the, the sixth highest scorers in the Premier League and they ranked seventh for chances created and I think ninth for shots on target. So they didn't always play like that. The, the accusation is not that Steve Bruce shouldn't set up this way against big clubs, although I think it, it, it completely didn't work here. But the, they seem to do that in all games they play. Duncan, will, I'm sure, will tell you, but they rank bottom of the Premier League for just about every attacking metric you can look at. And I think apart from, from goals scored and chances created, but shots and touches in the box and all those sort of things, they're last in the Premier League. And this side isn't bad. They've got good attacking players and they've got attacking players in St Maximan and Almiron who I think are thoroughly sick of of life at the moment. And they've got a set of supporters who are also sick of it. Um, Bruce said after the game at the weekend, it, it would have been really helpful for, for us to have fans in the ground this weekend because they'd have roared us on. And I thought, thought and that's a pretty rose-tinted view of how Newcastle fans would have, have assessed that home performance. <laughs> yeah, I mean... They- Steve Bruce, I guess, he gets, in some respects, um, an easier ride, maybe, because he's got, you know, friends in certain places in the media and is obviously, you know, a, a, a very kind of amiable man and author. But, um, yeah, I think the idea that, that Newcastle um, can just play like this all the time, you know, to add to Daniel's list of, of stats there, you know, PPDA, which is essentially kind of a measure of, of pressing, they were bottom last season, um, and then they talked about being more positive this season with you know with signings like Fraser and Wilson, and they're bottom again, even lower now. Um, and you know they're not that bad a team. They they could try and be a bit entertaining. Um, it must just be relentlessly depressing as a Newcastle fan because it's just it's just overly cautious the whole time. What about Chelsea in the meantime? They're two points off the top of the table themselves. Yeah, they're looking really good. I'm finding it a little bit difficult to judge them at the moment because, I mean, they've they've had some easy fixtures, haven't they? Their last three games have been against Burnley, who are second bottom, Sheffield United, who are bottom, and Newcastle, who probably should be bottom based upon the stats that have just been given. The two games before that, they drew with Southampton, they drew with Manchester United. So, I mean, they are doing roughly what you'd expect at the moment in terms of they're beating the weaker sides in the table, but they didn't necessarily do that that consistently last season, so we shouldn't be too snobby about that. But the games coming up are against Spurs, Leeds, Everson and Wolves, who, you know, maybe, well, with the exception of Spurs, aren't the, the... the strongest sides in the league, but I think that will be a, a difficult run, especially because they're in a relatively short period of time. And I think probably by Christmas time, we'll, we'll see what Chelsea are all about because at the moment, not quite sure of their level, not quite sure whether they are a, a true title challenger or not this season. Quick word for, for Tammy Abraham, who um, it must be quite hard for at the moment because he knows that when Kai Havertz and Christian Pulisic are back, Timo Werner can quite easily move into a central role and he might be on the bench. But he's got, he's got five goals and four assists in his last seven Chelsea starts. So he's kind of 
almost like Mason Mount, he's trying to make himself undroppable, which is exactly what Lampard would have wanted with the increase of competition for places because it's clear that Abraham kind of tailed off pretty badly towards the end of last season, but he seems to have got that spark back. The thing is with Abraham is he's a completely different style of forward to to Werner as well. I mean, there's there's situations where Werner's really effective and he was really effective in this game once Chelsea were already 1-0 up and Newcastle reluctantly had to push forward and attack a little bit because he had the pace to go in behind. But there's been a couple of games, I can't quite remember which one's off the top of my head, potentially Palace at home when they took a, a while to get the breakthrough, um, where against the deep defence, I just think he struggled to influence the game at all. So, yeah, I agree with what Daniel says, but I also think there's always going to be a role for a, uh, you know, a plan B. It could be that Olivier Giroud will be off in January um, to, to get playing time ahead of the major tournament in the summer, as Giroud always tries to do ahead of a major <laughs> tournament. So, yeah, I, I think there'll be games where Chelsea definitely need Abraham and probably need him from the start as well. And also word for Eduardo Mendy. I mean, didn't have that much to do in this game, but the the kind of impact of a of a good goalkeeper. We saw it in 17-18 with Edison at City, 18-19 Allison. Um, even going back, you know, when Pet Cech came into Chelsea or Pepe Reina or Edwin van der Sar at United, you know, it really can take a team from from nearly to to what they're trying to achieve. And I think, you know, the defence look a lot calmer and, and more assured since he came in. Indeed. Has anyone got any thoughts on Sunday afternoon's clash at Ellen Road between Leeds and Arsenal, which I think maybe people expected to be quite a spectacular one, but was instead a goalless draw, despite Arsenal playing 40 minutes with only 10 men after Pepe got sent off for a headbutt. I mean, Leeds Leeds should have won by about three clear goals, shouldn't they? And I think Arsenal... I mean, it was so clear that I don't think Arsenal will let the red card kind of uh, become an excuse, because I think Leeds completely outplayed them before that. If anything, I thought Arsenal had their better chances um, after going down to 10 men. Um I mean, from Arsenal's perspective, first of all, I thought they were really... For a start, I think they failed to match the intensity of Leeds with with a couple of exceptions. I thought Ceballos was quite good in the first half and Bellerin made a couple of forward runs. But I was surprised the lack of intention on the ball from their defenders because when you look at the way that Manchester City played against Leeds, and obviously we know the link between Arteta and Guardiola, I know they were hanging on at the end, but the first 20 minutes, City completely outplayed Leeds. And one of the reasons they did that was because Leeds man mark all over the pitch, particularly in midfield. And so if a defender kind of plays a 1-2 and gets a free run, they can almost dribble through the entire team and, and turn a defensive situation into attacking one really quickly. And Arsenal completely failed to do that until midway through the second half when for the first time Bellerin did it, dribbled through and created a really good chance for Saka. And until that, Arsenal hadn't shown anything. But I thought Leeds were just superior in almost every aspect of the game. I think the one thing that they probably didn't do was... They lacked a bit of patience after the red card. I thought they were trying to force the, the play a little bit too much. And I think if they just kept up a bit of pressure, and it's maybe another of those games where you think that the lack of home fans, maybe if those home fans and there was a little bit more of a different vibe, they probably would have got over got over the, um, what's that expression? Got themselves over the line. That's the one. But I mean, they hit the woodwork three times. So, I, you know, I think they just got unlucky really, didn't they? Arsenal will be, uh, or at least Arteta will be happy that his side kept it kept it tight, uh, even with 10 men, which, of course, the dressing room failed to do during the week. Uh, Somebody leaking news of this training ground bust-up between Danny Ceballos and David Luiz. There will be consequences, says Mikel Arteta, for whoever it was who's revealed this this little fracas. 
Mm. He was very angry after the final whistle as well. Um, was he? With Pepe, yeah. I mean, it doesn't feel like a particularly happy dressing room. Although I did enjoy how concerned Granite Xhaka was when uh, Bernd Leno cut his elbow, saving, on, banging into the post. Mm. He just kept shouting at the bench to get him a new shirt. I was like, I, I didn't, you know, it was quite nice, quite fatherly, but I don't know why I was doing it. The thing I liked about that was Martin Tyler was very impressed that the replacement shirt had Leno's yeah. name on it. We always thought, <laughs> well, he probably knows he's going to be playing in goal, doesn't he? He can probably, yeah, bank on getting a name printed on the back of that one, I would have thought. <laughs> yeah. Granite Shaka, it sounds like something that the Mafia would give an informant. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know, and it's, a, it, it, I mean, it, it isn't Twee because it's actually just a really nice thing to do, but a, a mention for Liam Cooper before the game, who had organised with a mascot who was, I, th- I think, due to be a mascot for Leeds, but was had, was very ill, uh, a young lad, 13, and kind of came out of the pitch with the iPad and kind of gave him the full experience on the screen. I thought, I know it's very easy to be cynical about absolutely everything, and I'm guilty of that, but that was a, a really, really nice gesture. Are you cynical, Daniel? Uh, by default, I think, and by really? association, yeah. Okay. One other thing this game did, actually, was obviously Aubameyang played centrally, which has been the the big call for the last few months. You know, get him central and and everything will be fine. And perhaps showed that the the problems at Arsenal run a bit deeper than that. Well, yeah, very uh, underwhelming performance from Pierre-Emerick. All right, then, we'll talk about more of the weekend's games very shortly. After this, a spot of On This Day. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. It's November the 23rd, uh, listener. Anyone uh, know what happened on this day? One of the most famous events in the history of the Premier League? Yes. Ali Dyer. That's right. Pump. That is right. It's the 24th anniversary of George Ware's cousin, only he probably wasn't, Ali Dyer, making his one and only Premier League appearance for Southampton. That's Breeze by the Prodigy in the background. They, they were number one at the time. Uh, probably playing in the background when Graham Souness, Southampton manager in the day, uh, received a phone call from someone claiming to be George Ware. You know the story, listener, who vouched for the footballing credentials of his cousin, Ali Dyer. Souness signed him up to a 30-day contract because that's how football was in those days. And threw him on because he didn't have anybody else fit, I think, when Matt Letitia got injured against Leeds on the 23rd of November 1996. Sort of like-for-like swap, this... And uh, it took him back off again 53 minutes later. Anyway, extraordinary. If you want to know how 90s it was, he said he was down to his last two strikers, Matt Letizia and Egil Ostenstad. The idea of playing one striker was so baffling. It was like, well, I had to play those two, and then we had to put this, this guy on the bench. So, a different time. The astonishing story is not that, really, that... Well, it is that Dyer made it onto the pitch, but it's that they had seen him in training. It's not like they hadn't seen him play, and... The Southampton players, I think it's a Quickly Kevin podcast, which they talk to Matt Letizia about the incident. And he says, yeah, you cannot believe how bad this guy was in training. So this idea that Souness 
persevered and said, well, I've signed him now. I'm going to have to pick him. So we didn't have to pick him, did you? It's a remarkable, remarkable thing to do. Do you think there's something else to it, Daniel? No, 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 not at all. I'm making no no slight on, uh, on anyone does. other than it's I an absolutely shambolic thing to do. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, uh, Saints will be celebrating Ali Dyer Day by visiting Wolves this Monday evening, uh, which Michael Cox informs us is a meeting between the two Premier League sides with the highest and lowest average shirt numbers of their most used 11 players this season. That's a fact. How did you come up with that, Michael? Um, well, it was international break, and um, I had just said, have you got any ideas? And I thought, Southampton are doing well, and they almost always use near enough 1 to 11. Right. Can I find a correlation between sides that use you know traditional shirt numbers mm. and kind of overperforming expectations vaguely on the notion that you know if you know your first 11 as Southampton do you're probably sorted whereas if you've got a load of newcomers wearing 35 you won't really have a clue and uh to be honest there wasn't that much correlation but oh. I cleverly decided to turn that uh, research into a fascinating tweet there you go <laughs> Saints always not lost inside the actor's <laughs> studio Saints yeah. are actually, well, they were fifth coming into this weekend. It'll be interesting to see what position they're in when they leave Molyneux. Uh, Wolves beat them quite uh, convincingly back at St Mary's in January. Adama Traore leading a, a comeback from 2-0 down for a 3-2 win. He doesn't seem to be in the picture much these days, though. Anyway, that is coming up Monday evening, as is Burnley Crystal Palace. Daniel, any thoughts on Burnley Crystal Palace? I just feel for the team who finds their fixtures at 5.30 on a Monday because it means the Premier League mm. considers you to be the B, the B of all the B fixtures. Uh, it's nice for West Brom that they got to play a big club this week, so they were allowed to play on Saturday night, <laughs> yeah. which is, is nice. I said this the other day, but I don't know why they're persevering with the Monday at half five time slot. You could, like Friday night or something might be better, might not, I don't know. They weren't allowed to do Friday this week because of the international break, it should be said. But it's a, you're right, it's a rotten time. Mm. Uh, this weekend, what else happened? Well, Colin Miller was pointing out that for all the table looking bunched up in the middle, we've got only five points separating teams in 15th and 5th. We've now got a separate kind of mini-league at the bottom, five points adrift, consisting of Fulham, West Brom, Burnley, who of course are still to play in uh, match day nine, and Sheffield United. These four teams have played the top 15 in the league 26 times so far this season. How many of those games have they won? Zero. Zero. How many have they drawn? One. One. Oh, wow. That West is Brom. bad. I didn't realise yeah. it was that bad. Blimey. <laughs> One point from 26 matches. So, um, yeah, it's quite worrying, isn't it? And it was the same this weekend. West Brom beaten a Man United, although I felt a little bit unfairly. Um, the Blades were beaten by the Hammers in what I like to call the Forge Derby. And uh, what else happened? Oh, yeah, Fulham lost to Everton. Although, El Meltico. Oh. <laughs> although Fulham, I felt, were again perhaps a little unlucky not to get anything from that game. Any signs of life in any of these sides? The Baggies, perhaps, who were unlucky at Old Trafford? What, what do you think? I just think it's remarkable that Fulham are on course to stay up with 17 points as things stand, which is says a plenty about the bottom four. Uh, at Fulham, I thought Scott Parker got it completely wrong. I know there are, uh, there are fatigue issues coming off the international break, but they looked a completely different team when they brought on Anguissa, who had been playing in the international break for Cameroon. 
Ruben Loftus-Cheek and, and Alexander Mitrovic. They just looked a completely different side. And I don't know why he's dropped Ruben Loftus-Cheek to the bench, but it's mm. it's a bizarre call. Um, I think I said it on here a couple of weeks ago. They're the one team down there that I think probably might change manager. Um, right. Because I think someone else could do something different with that squad. Okay. They, they might want to look at a different penalty taker as well because <laughs> yet more problems from the spot. They are on track. Are they, uh, Duncan, what do the numbers say, to concede more than 80 goals for the third straight Premier League season? Yeah, it's one of their, one of their special moves. So they seem to be... But I would say... They've got a higher XG this season than Man City, which I wasn't expecting at this point <laughs> of the season. So, you know, there are signs of, of life there. I think, they, you know, the Everton game summed it up. They're, they're pretty good going forward when they get the right 11 on the pitch, but defensively, they're still all over the shop. Um, mm. But with four teams looking pretty bad, it's a bit of a, you know, there's a Russian roulette, isn't it? One of them's going to be OK. So. Mm. I watched the first half of this game and then for the second half I had some uh, writing to do. Check out my analysis of, of uh, Atletico Madrid on The Athletic, of course. And then, uh, so I missed the second half but then heard that it was quite close going into stoppage time. So turned it on just as it ticked over to 90 minutes. And the first thing I saw was the fourth official holding up the board saying five minutes. And I instinctively almost said to myself, where's that come from? Despite the fact <laughs> I'd seen absolutely none of the second half. It's just what you have to do if, if five minutes is held up, regardless of whether you've seen the game. One of the reasons might be um, it was the first Premier League game with three hyphenated scorers. So it takes longer to read out who scored the goal. <laughs> to cut over Reed, Loftus-Cheek, and uh, Calvert Lewin, right? Okay, <laughs> that's Everton's first win in five after losing the last three games. Massive difference, a because they were playing Fulham, and b because Richardson was back as well. I mean, he should have scored at, at least twice. He had a kind of air kick. Uh, he had a, a lovely chance that Calvert Lewin set up that he kind of dipped inside and then kind of telegraphed his shot a bit, and um, the keeper was able to get down to it. But they do look better. But yeah, to reiterate your first point, they were playing Fulham and they looked... You know, Ancelotti even said at the end, after the end of the game, we cannot be that open. I know he changed system to try and move things around to make things easier for Hammers, but um, they were so open in that second half when they should really have been con- trying to shut down the game, not not opening it up. Yeah, they've let in two or more goals in the last six games, which is the first time since 2008 that's happened. Um yeah, I mean, just a quick one on Fulham's penalties. It's not just, I mean, I know everyone's laughing at the new ways they find every week to mess up, but since 2016, they've only scored 15 of 29 in league football, which wow. is, you know, virtually 50% conversion rate, which mm. is terrible. So it's, it's like a kind of, it is a club tradition at this point. Duncan, you like stats. Here's a great one from Richard Jolly regarding the game at Old Trafford. Mike Dean has spent longer on the pitch in Man United's Premier League games this season than Danny van der Beek. Mm. Van der Beek's obviously the only United player to score an open play goal at Old Trafford this season, so you'd think he'd get (laughs) more of a run out. But when they've got Bruno scoring penalties, Bruno's now taken 5% of all penalties Manchester United have had in Premier League history, which says a lot about the last few months. This one he retook, so did that count double for those? That would just count as one. Right. He also... It, it, it was initially thought conceded a penalty in this game, but then David Coote, the referee, decided that it wasn't a penalty after all, which I was surprised about because it looked like a penalty, but then I'm not a referee. Anyway, 1-0 it is. We, we don't need to get bogged down in replaying refereeing decisions. Uh, anything you want to say about West Ham uh, inflicting yet another defeat on Sheffield United? 
Well, while we're sharing stats, although it's not mine, I have to say, uh, it's the first time in his career that Sebastian Haller had scored from outside of the area. Um, league game number 190, which is um, quite a good effort for a striker. I, mean, I know Ruud van Nistelrooy kind of had that reputation as a uh, a kind of poacher, but you don't really associate that with, with Haller. I, I suppose a target man, but um, yeah, and he looked angry to have scored, which is always a giveaway of a striker out of form. I mean, I, I know this game was away from home. It was at Bramall Lane. But is it a coincidence that West Ham have got quite good since it was games behind closed doors? Because whenever I went to the uh, London Stadium, there was just such a kind of slightly bitter atmosphere. I mean, it kind of goes back to what Daniel said about Steve Bruce in Newcastle, how he said, you know, I wish we had the fans roaring us on. I mean, it's the kind of situation there as well where I think sometimes, you know, a few people have said it, but sometimes I think, you know, there's a nervousness and a tension and, and maybe even a kind of anger that is very easily transmittable from the stands to the to the players. And I wonder if West Ham are just preferring playing without that pressure. Don't know. I mean, if you went back to the start of this year and said by the end of this year, for brackets reasons, close brackets, um, that Mourinho and David Moyes would be the two in-full managers in the Premier League, people would have, would have scratched their head. But here we are. Here we are. And scratching our heads, to be fair. Aston Villa were defeated 2-1 by Brighton. The Seagulls thus moving away from that uh, quartet of misery at the bottom with their first ever victory at Villa Park. Uh, Danny Welbeck opening up the scoring with his first goal for his new side. Then Conzer equalised before Sully March got the winning goal. Then there was that late penalty, again, a, a penalty uh, which they then had another think about. But again, this one looked like a, a penalty to me. And I think to anyone who was watching it from a Villa perspective. On Brighton, kind of slightly ironic in that they've spent all season uh, out shooting and out creating their opponents and effectively not winning the games. And on Saturday, they were outshot and out created by Villa and won thanks to two, I guess in XG terms, very low chances, but brilliant finishes from players who we wouldn't necessarily, you know, I'm very glad that Welbeck's scoring again, but. Um, not necessarily a reliable goal scorer anymore. So mm. they basically completely flipped their, in inverted commas, narrative on its head. Um, and that really matters because they've got Liverpool, Leicester and Southampton to come, Brighton. So they really needed something before that. Although I think they probably would have got dragged into that bottom group. Mm. Ex-karma, you might call it, because it's been coming, I think, for them. I enjoyed Danny Welbeck's post-match interview, actually, where they asked him about the penalty decision and he started off talking as a striker and saying, yeah, you probably should have given... And then halfway through, he realised who he played for and he was like, no, actually, no, no, it's not a penalty, not a penalty. So, it's good. Well, down in the annals, it will go as a Brighton 2-1 win over Aston Villa and their first away there. Uh, good. Well, loads of other stuff has happened this weekend. Michael was touching on Atletico Madrid and their historic victory over Barcelona. There was also a pretty dramatic bit of penalty shootouting in MLS. And we can touch on some of those things in a second or two. First of all, though, let's drop in on our old buddy Lee Price. Hello, listeners. The latest instalment of the Premier League crowns full of drama, controversy and sordid acts. Well, if you count Nicholas Pepe's pretend headbutt as sordid. So maybe we can forgive the fact that tonight's listings look a little more like plot development than they do car crashes and explosions. The Palace will be on duty at Burnley this afternoon. Expect rain. And expect a victory for the House of Dyche, believe it or not. Our odds make Burnley the narrowest favourites at 13-8. to 8. 
The second game of the night is between two really lovely teams to watch. So a match fit for Netflix, you could say, although let's not open up that pay-per-view can of worms again, shall we? We're more confident than our favourites this time, although still not enough to make either team odds on. Wolves are 5-4 to four to beat Southampton. And the quick update on that race to be coronated, Liverpool remain favourites at around 11-10, despite having to field a team of scarecrows against Leicester. Poor them. While Man City, who lie 13th in the table at the time of recording, are second favourites at 23-10. Tottenham fans, of course, are already celebrating the change on the guard, but they're third in our betting. Oops. All the best. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18's only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Uh, some podcasts coming up for you uh, this week, listener. We've got the Totally Football League show out on Monday. A Totally Scottish Football show will be out on Tuesday. And we'll be discussing, amongst other things, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., a.k.a. Mayor Clay Davis from The Wire. Your Clay Davis impressions, please. She Except. Tweeting about Stenhouse Muir. He's a big fan. Is he? Yeah. Well, nobody knows the backstory yet, but he's begun to be quite active about it. So I, I feel like a, a full explanation is on the way. Maybe the Scottish football show, totally Scottish football show, will have it on Tuesday. Maybe this is a thing now with a kind of US TV and movie mm, stars absolutely. moving into yeah. How long till you all? How long till you all get bored of these American actors expressing interests in quite provincial British uh, football teams? About, about four days ago here. Really? Yeah, about the you same. are cynical, yeah. Daniel. Mm. <laughs> I mean, they are they are literally doing it to make a Netflix documentary about it. So, I mean, well, there is some cynicism on their part as well. Is my point? No, all right, okay. Uh, the Offside Rule uh, WSL edition is out on Tuesday as well, and it's a busy day for your ears, listener, because also seeking their attention is the Totally Football Show European edition, which is going to be not only previewing match day four of the Champions League, but also talking about uh, Erling Haaland, who scored four goals in Borussia Dortmund's win over Hertha Berlin. Uh, we'll talk about uh, ooh, Monaco's comeback win over Paris Saint-Germain, although Jules will go very quiet at that point. And uh, we, we'll also talk about Atletico getting their first win over Barcelona in La Liga in 10 years. Uh, Michael, you wrote about this. What, what did you write? It was a really interesting game. I mean, I focused on the role of uh, Yannick Carrasco, who played a very strange role where he was kind of a left wing back without the ball and then the highest player up the pitch when uh, Atletico did have the ball. And it was that kind of movement that uh, prompted the, the only goal of the game just before half time where he kind of ran through onto a through ball. Ter Stegen was sweeping about 50 yards outside his goal. And Carrasco produced this brilliant backheeled flick to kind of knock it through the legs of Ter Stegen and then finished into an empty goal from about 35 yards. But yeah, I mean, that record was remarkable that Simeone had never beaten Barcelona in La Liga when you consider he, you know, they beat them to the title in 2014. They've eliminated them from the Champions League twice in that time. I went back and I looked at the stats and there's 17 teams that have beaten Barcelona in La Liga since Atletico last did. So yeah, it was good for them to put that run to an end and I mean looked in really good shape I think they're looking the strongest side in La Liga so uh, yeah it was a, a good game they're three points behind Real Sociedad at the top but they have two games in hand on the Basques Emery's Villarreal are in third place 
Uh, after holding Real Madrid, who were fourth to a 1-1 draw this weekend, Barcelona all the way down in 11th. Much more of that kind of thing with an, a proper Spanish accent from uh, Alvaro Romeo on Tuesday's show. I doubt we'll get on to the Orlando-New York FC game. Um, but listener, if you haven't seen this, it was the probably the most extraordinary, the most eventful penalty shootout of all time. If, if you haven't seen it, this effectively is what happened, a, a little piece we call Orlando Confusion. So the game ended 1-1, meaning that the two teams had to go to a shootout, which Orlando were 4-3 up in, and their keeper Pedro Galezi saved Valentin Castellanos' penalty to put them through to the next round. And look at Oscar Pareja's reaction! Headed to the tunnel, it's over folks! Orlando City! Wait a minute! Yeah, wait a minute indeed. The referee had spotted the keeper off his line. And worse was to come. A, yeah, oh! a rec- What? Wow! Unbelievable. I can't believe it! Alejandro Berry, no puedo creer lo que acabo de ver! Referee shows Galezi a yellow card for the infraction, meaning he's sent off because he's already picked up a yellow earlier in the game too. And in the MLS... They do allow cards to be carried into a shootout and they don't require a verbal warning to keepers for coming off their line. Huh. Anyway, Orlando manager Oscar Pareja had been in the locker room celebrating what he thought was a win. He gets brought back out, told the penalty is going to have to be retaken and the goalkeeper replaced, so he brings on their substitute keeper, Brian Rowe. But as he stands between the posts, ready to face this retaken penalty... Wait a minute! Are they now talking to Alan Chapman about something else? They sure are. Referee Chapman has now realised that unless there's an injury, a goalkeeper cannot be subbed on in a penalty shootout. Off road goes again, with Orlando defender Rodrigo Schlegel now taking his place to face this repeated penalty. Here's Valentin Castellano. Schlegel to be a hero here if he saves this. Here's a shot and it's in the back of the net. He doesn't save it. Next up, Nani, sporting purple cornrows, steps up for Orlando. Nani to put this in the back for Orlando. Nani, saved by Sean Johnson. Both teams score their next penalty kicks before defender Schlegel faces another New York penalty. For Anderson to strike now. Schlegel's in the back. The shot, Schlegel saves it. Can you believe that? Unbelievable stuff here. What a finish, ladies and gentlemen. Orlando City has won their first playoff game in history. But wait, the wildly celebrating Orlando had lost track of the score. They actually still needed another kick to win it. Luckily, Benji Michel obliged. Here's the strike. And now... Now it's over. It's official. Orlando will now play in the conference semi-finals for the first time ever, without, though, keeper Gelesi. I like the doubling down of I cannot believe that it's unbelievable. Puedo really <laughs> <good laughs> creer, <laughs> and in Spanish as well for anyone who'd, who'd missed it. Uh, the, the commentators do a sensational job of not having any idea whatsoever what's going on through the entire. That sequence takes about sixteen minutes, I think, from the what they think is the first is the winning yeah. penalty save to the match he managed to conclude the, the shootout. And it's just total confusion from the referees, the, the players, the manager, and indeed the commentators. I haven't actually watched it purely because it was too long. Because I saw people go, it's 20 minutes. of I'm not watching a 20-minute penalty shootout. Oh, but it does sound quite it, good, actually. Yeah, yeah, no, it's good. Excellent. All right, well, much more of that kind of international fair coming up on Tuesday with 
as mentioned, Alvaro Romeo, also James Horncastle will be talking big about Milan and Zlatan, and Zlatan's incredible Sunday night performance against Napoli. And, uh, of course, Raphael Honigstein and Julian Aronswell on Tuesday. That wraps it up, though, for this show with Duncan, Daniel and Michael. So many thanks, guys, for being along. Uh, listener, I hope you've enjoyed it and that you'll catch up with us soon and have yourself a great week in the meantime. Cheerio. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics Football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees Media. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.